0: Um, Well, thank you for coming to the Student Symposium, and thank you very much to uh, to Kate for being our discussant. It's very good. I'm Rick Burridge. I'm a first-year, as you can tell by my useful figures, in international relations. Um, And I'm going to talk on what I've called the production of verification. What I mean by that is I'm going to claim um, that international verifications uh, are prone to manipulation um, by the powerful actors uh, for their interests. First, I'm going to argue that verification is conceptually problematic, and this has some practical consequences. I'll then suggest the inherently subjective nature of verification allows the possibility of truth reductions, synthetic reorderings of social reality for political purpose. Finally, uh, I'll explore the seldom analyzed OSCE Kosovo verification mission um, to illustrate. Uh, if, if anybody would like copy my working paper, then please send me uh, an email. Okay. That's great. Um, verification seems an historical phenomenon, um, last employed in earnest perhaps uh, in the search for Saddam's chimerical uh, WMD. The opposite is perhaps the case. Over 40% of the UN missions deployed since the millennium are at least partially based upon a ceasefire verification. Over the same period, the EU, the OSCE, the AU, and ASEAN have demonstrated both the willingness and ability to conduct verification missions at the regional level. The Iran nuclear deal is predicated on a comprehensive inspection regimed by the IAEA. The OSCE patrol NATO's eastern boundary, down the middle of Ukraine, and various IOs continue to monitor elections around the world. Conceptually, the verification engages some of the most important thinking in contemporary IR. It conditions sovereignty, it contributes to security, It provides legal and moral legitimacy for international activity. It is, accordingly, a source of power, and it suggests complex relations between the natures of power and truth. With minimal fanfare, verification pervades and influences international thinking and practice. It is thus perhaps surprising that no theoretical work has been conducted on verification since the end of the Cold War. Maybe this is because verification as a concept seems so evident, it's so tangible, as to contain little worthy of exploration, um, a view we can easily explode by recalling the complexity of the literature on the truth. Outside the academy, this lack of a theoretical framework is likely to affect both the operationalisation of verification as an international practice and our understanding of its results. The OED describes verification as the establishment by empirical means of validity of a proposition. Conceptually, this sets up certain problems. Is there a truth that is knowable? Is there a singular truth to know? Alan Krass describes a US attitude towards strategic arms controls as requiring not that the Soviet Union demonstrate compliance with arms controls treaties, but that it proved the absence of non-compliance. Now, Crass termed this impossible stipulation, the Katz tautology, of the rationalist uh, philosopher Gerald uh, Katz. And we can see it again in John Wolf's statement as to the only way the Iraqis could reassure the Security Council in 2003. Now, whilst Iraq's claim that it had no longer possessed WMD might have been disproved by the discovery of a single prohibited item, the CATS tautology rendered it logically impossible for the regime to prove that it didn't possess what it, apparently correctly claimed, that it didn't possess. Verification may never be able to prove compliance. However much evidence is gathered, the possibility that some non-compliance remains undetected will always exist. As Donald Rumsfeld reminded us, it is the unknown unknowns that tend to be difficult ones. The philosopher Charles Taylor suggests verification must be grounded in the supposedly brute data of which only a single interpretation is possible. And this allows us to conceptualize the idea of monitoring, the identification and reordering of information. An ideal of monitoring supposes that brute data can be recorded in a way unaffected by the perceiving monitor and any technical equipment the monitor might employ. Now such an ideal could be imagined to lie at one end of a spectrum. At this objective position, the verification and monitoring equate to the same activity. If it is agreed that no more than a certain number of missiles may be stored in a specified bunker at a specified time, conceptually there is no difference between the monitor's count and the verification which utilises that monitoring data. At this end of the spectrum, verification is indeed a matter of bookkeeping, An objective truth may, indeed, be out there to be discovered. As we move away from this point, however, monitoring and verification begin to separate as the necessity to interpret the data becomes progressively more urgent. Potentially a dual-use facility is encountered, brute data alone will be insufficient to verify whether the terms of the agreement are being broken. The further we depart from the ideal of monitoring, the more subjective, the more plural, the verifiers' inferences become. It will not be very long before we arrive at situations where the problem of intentionality and the likelihood of incomplete and imperfect information require that experience and judgment substitute for brute data and unchallengeable inference. The determination of compliance with an agreement necessitates the filtering and assembling of monitoring data. A process which historians would recognise as encapsulating a fundamental problem of historiography. A historian confronted with a bounded set of temporally identifiable brute data could create a chronology without difficulty. However, while such an exercise might have some heuristic utility, it cannot indicate which data is important and it cannot provide the insight that in plotting those important pieces of information within a narrative can do. Now The verifier, whose empirical data is neither bounded nor brute, might create several different narratives from the same data set, but she has no wholly objective method to indicate which one is the truth. The space beyond objectivity is one of narrative plurality. So what factors determine how truth is produced in this political space? Following the subfield of foreign policy decision-making, we might guess that the cognitive influences upon the individual verifier, the dynamics within the verifying group, and the procedures and structures germane to the verifying I.O. might all play a role. And a text such as Alison's Essence of Decision um, come very much to mind. Generically, third-party verification involves a series of procedures. A mandate is created, a head of mission is appointed and provided with staff, those staff derive operational tasks from the mandate, monitors deploy and communicate monitoring data. The staff draft verification reports, and the IO accepts, amends, or rejects the head of mission's verification judgments. Now, the creation of verification judgments is consequent of these procedures being sequenced, such that they behave in a path-dependent manner. The spectrum of possibilities encapsulated in a procedure is bounded by those particular possibilities which were realised in all prior procedures. A set of possible verification reports must be bounded by the set of realised monitoring data, which is itself bounded by the areas and monitors were deployed to, and so forth. Such a modelling and verification as a path-dependent process infers the presence of turning points, where it is relatively easy to turn from one possible path to another. A decision to specify a time limit in a mandate to deploy monitors to a certain area, or to incorporate a particular piece of monitoring data into a verification report are all potential turning points. Turning points may occur on both the path that describes the future practical conduct of the verification process, and on the path that represents a developing verification narrative. In the context of truth production, a turning point which constitutes a critical juncture is of primary importance. As the locking is difficult to reverse. Once, for example, verifiers become convinced of a particular party's duplicitous nature, they are likely to experience a cognitive lock, making them more acceptive of evidence which supports that narrative path and more questioning or discounting of evidence which does not. In the verification proposes a minimum of two conflict parties, there will always be actors of political interest. And they will invariably attempt to communicate that they are compliant with the agreement in question. More likely to affect an I.O. and its agents are the discourses emanating from the powerful states or blocs which might sponsor or otherwise have sympathy with a particular party. Actors may attempt to create political discourses in an open manner through political platforms, media briefings, social campaigns. Actors may also employ negative strategies such as briefing against their opposing parties or opaque strategies in which their role in discourse production is concealed. Now, the Kosovo Verification Mission was established in October 1998 to verify a ceasefire between the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and the Kosovo Liberation Army, UCICOM. Here's the head of mission, Ambassador William Walker, veteran US appointed by the OSCE's post chairman in of office without the normal consultation with other OSCE member states. is sliding along on the Holbrook milosevic agreement on which his verification was to be based. Now, the deployment of verifiers was not necessarily without problems. And it wasn't particularly helped when it found that the Italian-run reception center was hosting a brothel in the basement. Um, but by the the end of November, the mission had achieved some operational capability in the most troublesome parts of Kosovo. What the monitors on the ground were beginning to report was that the majority of ceasefire violations were being initiated by the KLA. In January, Walker's deputy stated, the KLA is responsible for most provocations and the Yugoslav authorities and the Serb police are responsible, sometimes, for exaggerated actions or are reacting heavy-handedly. In private, this assessment was shared by NATO and the US. However, this was not the discourse that the West outwardly conveyed. Babak Bahadar has analyzed all the press releases and statements concerning Kosovo issued by the Department of State, Defense, the White House, the contact group NATO and the EU Council for the prior 15 months before NATO's air campaign. Of these, he found 57% apportioned full blame to the Serbs and only 1% to the Albanians. The Kosovo verification mission might be described to have played out in an artificial discourse of Serbian guilt, which likely ripened the verification environment for whatever occurred in the village of Raczak. As a metaphor, a smoking gun conveys the idea that the suspect Called holding an actual smoking gun is probably guilty. With regards to verification, short of the planting of physical evidence, um, a smoking gun is more likely to be ideational. An actor might attempt to construct a smoking gun from existing information by plotting it in an advantageous way to convince either the verifiers or the I.O. um, of a particular narrative. Alternatively, a smoking gun could be constructed through the provision of partial or of false information. Either way, the aim is to influence a turning point on the verification narrative path so that the narrative more closely um, aligns with the smoking gun creator's interests. On the 16th of January, KVM monitors discovered the bodies of 40 Kosovo Albanians in civilian clothes in the village of Rachak. That afternoon, Walker, who had attended the scene, gave a press conference, and he stated, "The facts, as verified by KVN, include evidence of arbitrary detentions, extraditional killings and the mutilation of unarmed civilians of Albanian ethnic origin by Serbian forces." Now some mission members were uncomfortable with this because it overrode the mission's own verification procedures." Subsequently, Walker denied he had called any of my capitals before this briefing. However, Holbrook, General Wesley Clark, and the Deputy US National Security Advisor in Washington have each subsequently stated that they were called by Walker from Rakchak. It seems very likely that Walker did consult with his national capitals, although apparently not with the I.O. whose mission he was apparently heading. By the end of that day, the US President had condemned the massacre of civilians by Serb security forces. Bypassing his mission's own procedures, Walker constructed Ratchak as a smoking gun of Serbian guilt and it irreversibly changed the Kosovo narrative. Ratchak is now commonly described as a turning point. A turning point in terms of the outside world's understanding of what was occurring in Kosovo. A turning point regarding efforts peaceful to resolve the Kosovo conflict. The turning point for NATO intervention. Now, Walker subsequently claimed that the KVM had helped affirm that the Belgrade authorities were in almost total non compliance with the spirit and letter of the Holbrook Agreement. But this contrasts with his private briefings to the North Atlantic Council that the majority of violations were caused by the KLA. I've suggested that even straightforward verifications incorporate intrinsically subjective elements. Complex verifications, such as ceasefire verifications, contain political space, and this might be exploited by powerful external actors. I've offered a way in which this might be achieved. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that all verifications are suspect, but the increasing deployment of international verification missions and the legitimacy verification can accord to international activity makes it sufficiently consequential to deserve greater critical attention than it currently receives. Thank you.